If you will, please, take your Bibles once again and open them to Acts, the 19th chapter. Something that is a reality that perhaps is more clearly seen in other parts of the world than what is seen here in this country, though I think we're beginning to see more and more of this, is what is very obviously a spiritual conflict between light and darkness. That takes on a variety of different forms, and we are in a world that is darkened by the very presence of sin. There are times in which one of the dimensions of the sin that has infected this human race is manifest, and that is through demonic activity. We don't seem to see a lot of it here, although my my honest opinion is there's more of that that goes on than we have any idea. I think that there are times in which there are demonic powers that are influencing individuals and carrying them in certain directions and causing them to, to behave sometimes the way they do. And I believe that that can even affect Christians. I'm not talking about demon possession, but I am talking about demonic influence. And sometimes the greatest enemies of the truth of the gospel are those who carry the name of Christ. We are in a war. And sometimes we forget that. And the battle is between good and evil, light and darkness. The wonderful thing is this, that though there is great darkness in this world, whenever the light approaches that darkness the darkness flees. Where light is shining, the darkness is gone. And we have a demonstration of that very clearly given in this passage that we've read together today. There were the forces of darkness that were at work. There were the forces of light that were at work. And the forces of light overcame those powers and forces of darkness. And when that happens, it happens because... It isn't the individuals who are involved that have the capabilities to drive away the darkness. It is the power of God being used through individuals who are willing to allow the light to shine through them. And when Christ is at the center of our lives and He is the one that we are honoring, He brings through us light. And I want to tell you, that light is going to come into conflict with the darkness. But the good news is that the light wins. The light wins. We studied a a few weeks ago some transitions that had taken place in the lives of individuals that that are pretty important for us to understand. One of those transitions, and I'm just going to try to refresh your memories on this a little bit. One of those transitions that occurred was an understanding that worship of the true and the living God is a worship that's done in spirit and in truth. We don't worship God through ceremonies. We don't worship God through a a variety of different uh, religious activities. We worship Him from our hearts. And worship has to move from the realm of ceremony into the realm of that which the Spirit of God enables us to perform as we've come into a right relationship with Christ. 
You recall how Paul, as a Jew, still manifested some of the ceremonial observances for the purpose of keeping the doors open to reach his fellow Jews. It was a smart thing to do. He was wise in doing that. But it's very interesting that he never taught the church to become involved in ceremony. Instead, what he said was this, that in Christ... The ceremonies that, or the ceremonies that were used by the Jews, the law itself in its entirety was fulfilled in Christ. So that He became our Passover. He became the sacrifice that not only covered our sins, but cleansed them for all eternity. He became our Sabbath rest. It's part of the reason we don't meet on Saturdays. It's why we don't gather at sundown on Friday till sundown Saturday. Because our Sabbath is found in the person of Christ. And now we worship Him on the first day of the week, which is a reflection of the day in which He rose from the dead. And the transition from that ceremonial form of worship into worshiping the Lord in spirit and in truth took place following the ascension of Christ into heaven. There was another transition that occurred, and it was a transition that happened in the life of an individual by the name of Apollos, who had an understanding, but it was limited, about the person of Christ. And when he would preach, he, he knew the Old Testament very well. He understood that John, John the Baptist, was a forerunner to Christ, and he was bringing a message of hope and life that would be demonstrated and fulfilled in Christ's sacrifice. But he didn't understand the intricacies of what's involved in putting our faith and trust in Christ. Not that putting our faith in Christ is is a difficult thing. It in itself is not intricate. But there are a lot of intricate things that happen when we trust Christ. We not only receive forgiveness of sins, but we are granted a new life. That's why the Lord says, you must be born again. There is spiritual life that enters into the spirit of man who trusts Christ as Savior, and that is a life that now relates to the Creator. So you have that transition, and then you have the work of the Holy Spirit baptizing us into the body of Christ so that we are identified with Him. And when the Father looks at us, He sees the righteousness of His Son. And that same action, the Spirit who places us into the body of Christ, into Christ's body, enables us by spiritual gifts to perform works of ministry and works of service so that we're using the gifts that God has given to us. That same Spirit seals us until the day of redemption. That same Spirit teaches us the truths of God's Word so that when we open the Scriptures, we have the capability to understand spiritual truths that those who don't know Christ the Savior just can't grasp. These things don't make any sense to them. And there's a host of other things that come along with that. And Aquila and Priscilla took Apollos to the side And there was a transformation to full understanding. He began to grasp the realities of what we have in Christ. Then there was another transformation. And this was a transformation to full belief. 
Last week in the first part of this, or pardon me, two weeks ago in the first part of this uh, 19th chapter, we were introduced to 12 different people who are identified as disciples. They were not disciples of Christ. They were those who had followed John the Baptist, and they had gotten no further than understanding the baptism that John introduced, which was a baptism of repentance. It was turning away from sin, and it was designed for the purpose of turning people to Christ to believe in the one who would come after John, the one whose shoe latchet he was not worthy to unloose. But they never made that transition to full trust in Christ. They knew a lot of, of religious things. They knew a lot of spiritual things. But they did not know Christ. They did not have the Spirit of God dwelling within them until they were clearly presented the truth of what Christ did. And then they declared their personal faith in Christ through the waters of baptism and identified themselves with Christ, which was really done initially through their faith, but then it was demonstrated openly through their baptism. And those individuals now, 12 of them, came to know Christ as their Savior. That presented us with a very interesting challenge for ourselves. And, and I want to reiterate this because I think this is vitally important. And, and I'll probably never stop talking about this. But it's very important that every one of us examines himself, examines herself concerning our personal faith in Christ. I am deeply concerned today. The same thing that I am seeing not just locally, but all over the country where people claim to be followers of Christ, but the evidence of their knowing the Savior is not there. There doesn't seem to be the spiritual life. There doesn't seem to be an understanding. It's almost as if they know all about Jesus. They know all of the religious words to use. And when you're talking to them, they, they suddenly become very uh, pious and oh, oh yes, uh, the, the kind of people who, who make statements like this. Um, uh, not quite sure how to put this, but here's the idea. They'll swear like sailors until they find out you're a pastor. You know, if you ever go golfing and you get hooked up with people that are not part of your group, and they get to the first hole and they whack the ball and it goes off to the side. They, they let it go. And... Boy, the air turns blue, and then they hit the next one, and it's hooked into the pond on the left. And then they hit the next one, and it's in the sand trap. And by this time, they're using every word imaginable. Then you get to the first green after they get there in about 12. <laughs> I might get there in 14, so it doesn't, that doesn't make a whole lot of difference. And then they'll say this, what do you do for a living? And I say, well, I'm a shepherd. <laughs> No, I'll tell them, I'm a pastor. And they go, oh. <laughs> and then there's this real uneasy feeling, and, and they say, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm really sorry for that language I used back there. And you can see them fighting the rest of the round, trying not to let it fly. But they get real pious. Oh, how, how big is your church? Oh, maybe, let's see, 150 by... No, they usually want to know 
the number of people, not the size of the building. And then they'll ask you all these religious things. And they'll act as if there's some kind of really good person. You may never get to that extreme, but I will say this. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he said, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. And I would ask you to do the same. You may know all the terms. You may have all the answers. You may know all about being a follower of Christ. But the Bible says he that has the Son has life. And he that has not the Son of God has not life. And so I would dread the thought that anybody that is under the sound of the gospel of Jesus Christ would not make that step by faith, recognizing that Christ died for your sins. He didn't die so that he could come beside you and walk with you through life. Though he will do that. He didn't die so that you would have somebody you could cry out to when you find yourself in trouble and know that now you have somebody there that's going to get you out of trouble. Though he may very well do that. But he died for our sins. We are sinners who need a Savior. And it is only through that sacrifice, the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ, when we trust in it, that the benefits of his death, his burial, and his resurrection become our possession by virtue of the sovereign, divine grace of God. And it's not anything religious we do. Now, after we know Christ, our lives change. And we're enabled to do good works. And they're important. And we should do them. But that's not how we earn God's favor. Guess who earned the Father's favor? The Son. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear Him. And it's when we come to the Son and receive Him as our Savior, trusting in His death, His burial, His resurrection. He is alive. And because He lives, we too shall live. Have you made that transition? Have you come across the line and moved from death into life? You have to decide. And I hope you can all give an affirmative. You know the neat thing? If you cannot say this moment, I know that my sins are forgiven. I know beyond the shadow of a doubt that I have been forgiven by God. I have been granted the gift of eternal life. I have received that presence of the Spirit of God within me. There is evidence of that in the way my life is manifesting fruit for the glory of God. If you can't say that, that can all change at this moment. Right where you are. I believe that Jesus died for me. I receive Him as my Savior. The Bible says that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you'll be saved. It's pretty simple, isn't it? Pretty simple. 
But it is the hardest thing in the world for a person to lay hold of who does not have a willingness to open their heart to the truth of Jesus Christ and what he has done. Now, does anything happen after a person trusts Christ? Well, the answer obviously is yes. We've already talked about some of those things. But now what we want to do is examine in this brief portion of Scripture what some of the evidence is that God himself is at work in us and through us. So if you'll turn once again back to this 19th chapter, and we're going to start looking at this 11th verse, what we begin to see when there is evidence of God being at work is that there is a divine power that is demonstrated. And this power that is going to be demonstrated in Ephesus is going to be a bit unique. It's going to take us into a realm that, that quite frankly, raises some questions today. But we need to understand why this demonstration of power was so important. There is probably no place on the populated earth that was more deeply involved in spiritism and the magic arts and sorcery than the people who dwelled in Ephesus. Paul finds himself in this city, and you talk about facing darkness. He is eyeball to eyeball with that which is dark. But through him... God begins to do some mighty works. And there is evidence of God working. And here it comes. The first evidence that that flows out of this is that there's some really positive results that come by virtue of Paul's involvement with the gospel and presenting people uh, what Christ had done. Notice verse 11. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, and the evil spirits went out of them. All right. How many of you have been written to by present-day hucksters? Oh, see, I've already loaded that up. By evangelists who tell you if you send them some money, they'll send you a, a card... a a piece of fabric that they have prayed over, that they have laid their hands on, and when you receive that, you'll, you'll be able to ask for healing and God will heal you. You'll be able to ask for special blessings. Of course, you'll be able to ask for for riches. I mean, got to have that pink Cadillac. Um, I hope none of you have a pink Cadillac. Any of you work for Mary Kay? I hope not. Oh, <laughs> do you have a pink Cadillac, Susie? You <laughs> well, you know I'm not talking about you. <laughs> but if you get the pink Cadillac, I will be. Anyway, no. <laughs> what, what happens is there are people that take this passage and they say, oh, well, Paul did it. it it's got to be for us. Would you take just a close look? at the verse that precedes that. The answer is right here. It is very obvious. Notice, it says, God worked unusual miracles. This is not going to be the ongoing process of God's behavior. God never changes. Is that true or false? That's true. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The the term that is used theologically is he is immutable. It means he does not change. But there is another word that tells us another truth about God that is extremely important to understand. 
He is not immobile. It means that being the same God yesterday, today, and forever, He can choose to do things differently, which He has done all through history. This is an unusual circumstance of events that are taking place. And notice this. It's very restricted. Now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. Not anyone that wants to claim that power, but by the hands of Paul. An unusual miracle for an unusual circumstance through an unusual individual. An apostle Paul. So that... Now, do you believe that people were healed? Yeah, I do. I believe that these things happen. I believe that what is happening is Luke is recording for us events that actually took place. Handkerchiefs, aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the disease left them and the evil spirits went out of them. And so you have this demonstration of positive results. People are being healed. People are being set free from the influences and from the possession of demonic spirits. But because God is not immobile, we are led to understand that God still does things as he chooses because he is a sovereign God, but he does them different ways. Folks, if, if you want my hanky, it's clean. Yeah, it's clean. And you believe that this touching you will do you anything other than help wipe your nose. You're deceived. I can tell you what I can do for you. I can do the same thing that any other born-again believer in Jesus Christ can do for you. I can ask God if it is his will to heal you. I can ask God to deliver you from the influence of the powers of darkness. And some of you have gone through those times. And some might be going through them right now. And part of what we do for one another as followers of Christ is we pray for each other. But I don't have the power to do unusual miracles because my name is not Paul and I'm not an apostle. But what I do know is this. My God is all-powerful and he is good. And whatever he chooses to do will be the right thing. When people are given over to the power of Christ, there will be positive results. How will they be demonstrated? Any variety of ways. Different things will happen at different times. There will be people healed. Have you ever heard of people being healed today? Not by the whack on the forehead, but by the prayers of individuals interceding on behalf of others. And they go back to the doctor and suddenly the doctor says, I can't find that cancer. It it was there, but now it's gone. I, I can't explain this. We can. There is a God who can do that. We have watched people whose lives have been given over to the realm of darkness in evil behavior who are set free by the light that comes in Jesus Christ and their whole life changes. We've seen that. There's evidence that God is at work. But here's what you have to be careful of. There will be positive results when God's at work, but there's also going to be the effort of counterfeit, counterfeiting the work of God. 
And notice how that happened here. It says, then some of the itinerant Jews, in in verse uh, 13, some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you by by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And then we're given an example of what happens. Also, there were seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest who did so. This, would you be scared if you were one of these guys? This would frighten the daylights out of me. Not only coming face to face with an individual who is demon possessed, but hearing the events that follow from a demonic spirit who understands things that you and I do not fully understand yet because they are in the spirit realm and they understand things that we have not seen yet. And the demons respond and they say, well, Paul we know, Jesus we know, but who are you? You talk about a frightening reality suddenly hitting home. The one who has manifest the power of light, you're not even identified with him. And this demon-possessed man jumps seven of them. Now, either these were the wimpiest guys you've ever seen in your life, or there was an incredible amount of spiritual power, demonic power, given to this man who jumps them, beats them up, and strips them of their clothes. Talk about humiliation. Verse 16, Then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. There were those who were trying to counterfeit the work of God. Can Satan ever do that? Can the demonic powers ever counterfeit the work of God? The answer is yes, they can, to a limited degree. We have a perfect example of that with Moses. Do you remember how Moses went before Pharaoh and he was to take the rod of Aaron and cast it down and that rod turned into a snake? And then the Bible tells us that the magicians who were the Egyptians uh, or the Egyptian magicians took their rods, threw them down, and they, tur- they too turned into snakes. Now, how did that happen? I don't know. I don't understand all that goes on here, but here's what I do know. Aaron's rod ate up the other snakes. <laughs> which is essentially a declaration that greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. You don't have to be afraid of demonic powers, brothers and sisters in Christ. You don't have to be afraid of them, but you better respect their power. It is incredible. In fact, there are going to be efforts during the tribulation period made by Satan that the Bible describes as Signs and wonders. Incredible things being counterfeited by demonic powers. And I believe that some of that is even happening today. I believe there are powers in the spirit realm that make it look as if those who are the enemies of Christ are actually prevailing by virtue of things that these demons do for them. These... uh, these, um, Fortune tellers. People get all crazy because they know a fortune teller that that predicted something that was going to happen. Do they really know the future? 
No. They are not omniscient. But you know what they are? They are very smart. And they can take information and they can bring it together and they can draw some conclusions that a good portion of the time they will communicate to those who have given themselves over to their power and then give a a fortune-telling of the future. I guess that's the same terminology. You know what I'm saying. They can tell the future, and it looks like it comes true about half the time. You know what the Lord said about a prophet who is not right all of the time? They are a false prophet, prophet, and in the Old Testament, you were to put them to death. You were to take their lives because they were deceiving people in an eternal issue. You are going to see that taking place. I believe that we are seeing counterfeit Christianity today in many, many, many places. be careful about things that I say. Did you all watch the the uh, royal wedding Friday? Saturday. No. Friday. Friday. Um, there were some things that were really cool about it. Uh, my wife made me watch it. <laughs> no, I, really, I, I, I did kind of enjoy watching it. She gave me the remote and said, you can change the channel if you want. And I was like, and I'm watching all this. I really like the cars they rode in. Those were cool. But um, the Archbishop of Canterbury said some very nice things. But you need to know something. He is a deceiver. The man is a heretic. He has challenged the realities of what we know about Jesus Christ. And maybe it's not a nice thing for me to say. But I'll tell you what. There's deception going on today. And if people follow the teaching of the Archbishop of Canterbury, he's going to lead them right into hell. He does not know the Lord we know. That's, by the way, by his own writings. I'm not making that up. Anyway, just throw that out so you are aware. Okay? A a third element that's involved here is that divine power will be vindicated Wherever God is at work, there is life and there are works of good. Notice what it says in verse 17. This became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified, and many who had believed came confessing and telling their sins. They believed, they received life, they did that which was good and holy. And wherever God's work is being proclaimed, there is life that is coming and there are holy, good works that are being performed. There's another element that's extremely important. Sin will be dealt with. Sin that emerges in that 17th verse and continues on down through verse 18. Many who had believed came confessing, telling their deeds. 
Also, many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they continued up to the, or pardon me, and they counted up to the value of them, and it totaled 50,000 pieces of silver. One piece of silver was the equivalent of a day's work. 50,000 of them. This was a huge, by the way, um, somebody might look at this and say, oh, that's terrible. There was a book burning. Yeah, there was. And some books probably shouldn't be. Uh, distributed. But here's what I want to tell you. I believe that this was a good thing for the simple reason that these were uh, books designed for the purpose of taking you into demonic activity. But do I believe in book burning today? Well, in the same type of book I would. But I'll tell you something. Don't be afraid of books that even challenge what we believe. When you have the truth, it prevails. Don't be afraid to read. Don't be afraid to be challenged. We have the truth. That is not arrogance. It's reality. So don't be afraid to read books that challenge what we believe. Oh, I know people that read these books and they were led astray. Well, yeah, if you start giving in to things without examining the truth of God's word, but when you read that which is not true, go back to God's word and guess what? You find out what the truth really is. So don't be afraid of that. But anyway, here's a book burning. And this is all part of the manifestation of people forsaking their sins. What happens? God's people realize that they have been deceived by sin. And that can happen. Have you ever been deceived by sin? Have you ever been deceived by sin? Sin promises one thing. You give in to it. It delivers something very different. It happens all the time. It happens all the time. Young people have to go through a bunch of experiences in life which if they listened, if they paid attention, they wouldn't have to go through them. But truth of the matter is, your parents did, and you probably will too. But let me tell you, every time sin comes your way and knocks at the door, it deceives Sin promises one thing and it delivers something else. I can take you to thousands of people who will tell you exactly that same thing. But it's not just kids. It's everybody here. Do you know how God's people respond? We deal with it. We're going to be deceived by sin, so we deal with it. What do we do? We can't continue in sin. When John wrote, he said this, Whoever abides in him does not... Now I'm going to read the tense, the way this is written, not the way it's translated in our scriptures. Whoever abides in him does not continue in sin. Whoever continues has neither seen him nor known him. We've dropped down to chapter, uh, 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. Whoever has been born of God does not continue in sin. For his seed remains in him, and he cannot continue in sin because he has been born of God. What this is telling us is this. You can commit acts of sin, but once you understand what those sins really are, you don't continue in them. You forsake them. You confess them. And you find restored fellowship with the Father, not renewed salvation. You don't lose it once you've got it. 
You're a child of God. He doesn't give up his kids. But he doesn't always manifest happiness with our behavior. And so we put ourselves back into a right relationship with him when we confess our sins. And by dealing with that sin, we have that restored fellowship and freedom to serve Christ. Why is that important for us to understand today? It's because we're going to be gathering around the Lord's table. And the Bible says this, let a man examine himself. What does that mean? It means you check out where there's sin in your life. And where there's sin, you confess and you forsake it. Whoso confesses and forsakes his sin shall have mercy. When we gather around these elements, we remember the death of Christ, the sacrifice of his body, the shedding of his blood. But we also examine ourselves. And where the power of God is being manifest, sin is forsaken. And people are set free from the bondage that it brings even to believers who are under its sway by virtue of deception. I hope this all makes sense, folks. Where God is honored, where Christ is honored, there will be a manifestation of divine power and there will be a forsaking of sin. Two very important principles that I hope we live by. I'm going to ask our gentlemen if they would come and as we prepare our hearts to receive the elements of the Lord's table, I would ask you, first of all, do you know Christ as your Savior? If you came in today and you didn't trust Christ before, I hope you did previously to this. I hope you trusted Him. And if you know Christ as your Savior, are you willing to examine yourself and say, you know what, this is a sin in my life and this has to go. I deal with it right now. And the Lord says you will have mercy. And then... Some of you are here today and you're our guest. Maybe you come from a church that practices a thing that's called closed communion, which means you have to be a member of the church in order to participate. I don't believe the Bible teaches that. I believe the Bible teaches that there is a fellowship that is represented within the, the bread that represents our Savior's body and the cup that represents His shed blood. And so here's what I would ask you. If you know Christ as your Savior, I would ask you to join with us participate in partaking in these elements. If you don't know Christ and you say, well, I'm not, I'm not really prepared to receive him, then I would just ask you to pass the elements on. Nobody's going to be watching you. Nobody's going to make you do anything. I'm just asking you to look at yourself. Be honest with yourself. And if you can say, I know the Savior, and I, though I'm not a member here, though I, maybe my, I'm just visiting, but I want to be part of this fellowship then you, you participate with us because we're going to gather commonly around the elements of the Lord's table. We're going to receive the bread first that represents the body of our Savior that was sacrificed for us. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful that our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, went to the cross of Calvary and took upon His body our sins and died as a sacrifice, the Lamb of God, the perfect Lamb of God that was slain for us. We thank you that that body not only perished in death, 
but rose again three days later in conquering life. We remember Christ, and we thank you for him. Amen.